Welcome to Hyperspadius Conversations with co-host John Filippelli and Bonnie Steinberg. We are members of the community that have experienced living with Hyperspadius, and we want to begin the dialogue with members of that community, the men, women, and parents whose lives, or the lives of those they love, have also been affected by this common yet largely unknown condition, and to create more safety to have these conversations. So welcome to another episode of Hypospadius Conversations. Uh, I'm John Filippelli, along with my co-host, Bonnie Steinberg, our guest. He's been a, uh, a longtime friend, and uh, I consider uh, someone who's really been at the forefront of advocacy for disorders of sexual development and has been a real pioneer in a lot of ways um, in that area. Jim Lake has been a member of uh, HEA, which was formerly known as HAA, the Hypospadius Association of America, since it met in April of 2002. He joined the board a couple of years later and served as a board member, treasurer, president, and executive director up until 2020. Although no longer on the board, he continues to support HEA through fundraising, including his annual walk, which is going to be coming up soon uh, on August 27th of this year, 2022 in the Chicago area. And Jim will explain that um, during this podcast. Jim was born with penniscrotal hypospadias, uh, which led to childhood surgeries. And because of secrecy, it led to uh, many more surgeries for him as an adult. So he's come here today to share his experiences with us all. And uh, currently he works for a managed care organization as a manager working with Medicaid, Medicare populations. So it's our pleasure to welcome Mr. Jim Lake. Hey, Jim. Hey, thank you, John. Let's talk a little bit about your personal history and um, if you can explain that and then we can um, go from there. A lot of it is based on story because, you know, my parents passed away in the mid 80s. So a lot of the history I found out later uh, through relatives, it seemed that everybody knew about me except for me. Uh, so that was, it was strange being the black sheet of the family and not even knowing about it until much later on. I was born, uh, actually, I was conceived in Tripoli, Libya, Africa, in would have been 1958. Uh, my twin miscarried, and then I was born like two months later. And I was born not developed. Uh, my stomach wasn't formed. A lot of my systems weren't fully developed. So I know that um, they sort of did a round the clock vigil until my stomach developed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because of that, I was born with hypospadias, um, as you said. And the options that the doctors gave my parents were um, something I remember Barbara Nielsen and Janet Green used to say, well, it's easier to dig a hole than build a pole. <laughs> so the options were make him a girl or uh, we'll operate and make him a boy. But the surgery is, um, you know, it's very difficult because I had the glands was attached uh, to the abdomen and the testicles were in descended. And it basically looked like um, I was intersexed, but they did the surgeries. Uh, there were seven in total and then they were never discussed i kind of grew up thinking i was a little bit special because i kept going off to well then i discovered it was walter reed hospital 
but I kept going away frequently and uh, going to this place with all these other kids. We were all sort of strapped to our iron beds at the time, and I'll never forget it. And I still remember what the nurses looked like. The memories were so clear. But why I was there, I don't know. Uh, you know, I never knew that part. It was just like some rite of passage I had that my, my brothers and sisters didn't get to participate in. That all ended around the time that I was four years old. And then uh, I went on, I guess, fairly normally and went through school, went through high school. So as I hit puberty, I started to have questions, though. Uh, and I hit puberty early and I turned hairy early. Um, I would say like age 11, age 10, um, when I could grow a beard and a mustache. And I noticed that my penis wasn't like my brother's, not that we went around looking at each other all the time, but I could just tell that, you know, mine, mine tilted a little bit and I was just curious. So I would ask my father, I would ask my mother and they would just change the subject and go on. So eventually when I got through uh, with high school, I had the opportunity actually to move here. I won't get into a lot of personal things. I did go to college for a semester. It didn't work out. Uh, I moved to Chicago. I actually was living with a friend from high school and a nurse that I knew. And so uh, a little bit of time went by and I confided in this nurse. And I said, you know, I think I have a problem. And I'm really not sure. I just, you know, I, I think I do because I'm just not like any guy that I've seen. And she said, well, first of all, I have another good friend who's a psychiatrist and we're going to go visit him. <laughs> so she wanted to make sure that I was covering all my bases. And actually, he was a psychologist and a very good therapist. And I was very glad that she did that. Second of all, uh, we were living in a pretty good suburb of Chicago. So uh, there was, we went through the phone book, found good urologist, and there was one that used to be with NASA. So we figured, well, he's got to be good. So scheduled me an appointment to see this doctor. And so we did that. I went to see this doctor. Um, he was actually pretty cool. He looked at his watch and he said, you know, I've just got a few minutes, so I need you to just spill it. <laughs> So I did. And he said, I'm sorry to do that, but everybody just hems and haws. So I need to speed up this process a little bit. So he met with me. He did a full examination. And that's when I found out about the surgeries. He said, well, let's, let's put you on this table. I'm going to bring a mirror around. And he showed me scar by scar by scar where the other surgeries had been. And he said, up until this time, I believe that you have had seven surgeries and you know i just had no recollection of them whatsoever i had the recollections of being in the hospital i had no recollection of surgery so that's i guess something that kids can do when they're young or you know protective moving on what he he then told me if we were the only two people in alaska and you know i had to operate i would but he said the very best surgery in the united states is here in chicago for hypospadias and that was the first time i ever heard that word and it took like three months to see him he was he was like the doctor who actually learned under i heard doctors that i had at baltimore he saw me 
and basically said, yes, we can um, have this surgery. You'll be fine in one operation. It'll fix the cordy. I wasn't sure what the curvature was called. I had a cordy to the left and he said, then you'll be fine. So in the meantime with all this, uh, it was it became kind of mental. I wrote my parents like this 25 page letter <laughs> and just waited and it wasn't long and they sent me a almost equally long letter back along with all my medical records, apologizing profusely. Uh, they let it be known that it was the psychology of the time uh, that I should never be told about the surgery whatsoever, that I should just be living my life as I should and being raised as a boy and, you know, everything will work out. Well, obviously it did except for those questions. And I really wish that my parents would have addressed those questions as they were asked. Then I wouldn't have felt as isolated and uh, different as, as I did. So regardless, I went to this doctor and I'm, not, I'm gonna leave out names now because I really, you know, a lot of these doctors are long gone. And yeah, I've, I've also had this history of doctors liking to look at my surgeries because of the doctors that I've had in the past. Um, and, and that's kind of freak showy. So I kind of just leave the names out nowadays. <laughs> this doctor operated the very next day everything was green ooze coming out from under the bandages. That healed up, I was wide open. Six months later, I had another surgery, same thing. Six months later, another surgery until I had seven additional surgeries, all with the same outcome. At that point, he said, there's nothing else I can do and there's nobody that I can refer you to. This is the way that it's going to be. Um, I was kind of devastated. <laughs> as um, when this happened, I was 21 years old. I want to say this happened in 1980. I know there are different times in my past where I wasn't quite sure when it happened, but I, I timelined it to where I moved to Chicago the day after Thanksgiving of 78, lived through the blizzard of 79, started all this process when I was living with this nurse um, during this time. And so it was around 1980 that everything was arranged and I had that first surgery. Luckily, I had a job that was very good and insurance was also way better back then. So they allowed me, you know, because each time I was basically strapped to a bed for a month. It wasn't any of this get up and do that. It was like you're laying flat on your back because you're, you know, we're afraid that your stitches are going to get ripped. I had a couple problems and the doctors would blame each other. Doctors Horton and Devine, uh, they were from Norfolk, Virginia, and I was able to get to see them. And actually, they also did, I want to say, they did a three-stage repair, which was still a fairly new process even then, but it seemed to have worked. The thing about these repairs, I mean, after all that I had been through, uh, they did it. The only thing they didn't do was something I didn't want them to do and I didn't give them permission to do was a skin graft. They took skin from my side and put it on the top of my penis. So now I have a two-tone penis and I did not want that. I didn't want to look any more freakish than it already was. <laughs> so uh, another doctor told me later on that I could have it tattooed, but I have a feeling that that 
really wouldn't be a great thing either. So anyway, after three surgeries, I thought I was in the clear. Everything seemed to be fine. Unfortunately, like, let's see, that was 1985, uh, somewhere around there, 1984, when I was finally done with that. My parents, unfortunately, both died six weeks apart in 1986. And that was kind of devastating. But shortly after that, I started having strictures again. And I'm like, hmm, you know, this was supposed to last forever. During that time, I had moved back to Chicago and got another urologist who basically gave me surgical dilatations. Uh, so I did those to the point, uh, actually very many of them. And they he finally just said, Jim, this is supposed to be a permanent fix, not a temporary one. So what was happening is my urethra tube uh, would just start to shrink. and then that would cause the infections and that would mean that it's time for another urethroplasty or, you know, a new urethra tube. Uh, also in those days, they were not taking the skin from the mouth in the earlier days. They were taking it from wherever on my body, there was no hair. <laughs> so that left a very limited amount of places. Regardless, after this doctor said this, I ran into another doctor who was the student of the doctor in Chicago that of course, told me that I had no hope. He told me exactly what he would do. And he actually used a lot of the words that first doctor used. I have never run out of an office so fast in all of my life. <laughs> so that was uh, just an unusual time. I, I met um, actually around this time, this would have been after the year 2000, that I started running into HEA moms and meeting more and more locals because in 2002, uh, like I said, is when I had my first um, meeting with HAA, which then another member with Epispadius was there. So they changed it to Hypospadius Epispadius Association. So through this organization and through the internet, because, you know, that wasn't really a thing back in 2000 it sort of was but you know you had your AOL and <laughs> your good old dial up which was great until somebody the phone rang or something like that and then you lost everything before that happened and now I'm a little bit ahead of myself um I was sitting at home one day and just turned the tv on and there was Dr. Howard DeVore talking about hypospadias and I'm like that's odd so it was just one of those coincidences in life uh, where I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, it was the show, Are You a Boy or, or, I think, Are You a Boy or a Girl? Or Is It a Boy or a Girl? And I happened to turn it on right when it started. And uh, it basically changed the whole direction of my life. That's when I looked up Hypospatus. I saw that they were having that conference and I didn't care what it took. I was going to Colorado for that conference and did. From that point, I sort of made it my pursuit to find anybody and any information regarding not just Hypospatus, because I also wanted to know about this other, you know, whether I was intersexed when I was born, et cetera, et cetera. So I also discovered the Intersex Society of North America, which is also the society who made that movie. Um, they were the producers of that, that film. 
that documentary. So actually, I went to San Francisco for a medical conference and met some other people, got involved uh, with the Intersex Society of North America, got involved with Advocates for Informed Choice, got involved actually with the Bladder Estrophy Association. I met, you know, just a lot of similar organizations that were doing different things in different places. But I also met a lot of people that have remained in my life from those times. So I'm very grateful. And the thing that came out of that is that I had a lot of alliances and people that I knew when I would then go to organize conferences or, you know, do things, uh, organize my walks. Basically, yeah, I started looking for more surgery uh, because I knew that the the other surgeries were going bad. The surgical dilatations weren't working. Uh, so I ended up going back to Norfolk, uh, seeing another doctor who also did three-stage repair. Uh, this time, the buccal mucosa was the new thing. I remember going to the New York conference and the president at the time and two others were talking about their surgeries that were upcoming or they had just had them. And that was pretty cool. So I presented what my next surgery would be. And then I went and did that. So they took the buccal mucosa from my inside of my mouth and built a new urethra and put that in. And of course, it took a while to heal. And then in different stages, they sealed it up. I guess the thing that I've learned through all this, and I have had several surgeries since, is was the surgery a success? Initially, yes. In my case, I've never had a surgery last more than four years before it started to break down. When I met Barbara Nielsen, she also gave me another term, which is BXO. And you'd have to Google that. It's another word that I could not say in real life. <laughs> so regardless, what it means is that it's a condition where it actually creates strictures. So uh, she was of the mind, regardless of what I did, I would continue to have strictures. I actually went back to Norfolk, had additional surgery. And once again, that didn't work. Uh, went back to the dilatations. And it was funny because at this point, uh, after I joined HEA, I made the decision to go ahead and switch and get my master's in counseling. So I was working actually for special ed, which was perfect for getting a master's degree and doing this. But I also had insurance and right down the street from my office was a urologist. And I'm like, I just went in there, I did some research and actually it was a group and there was one that was specialized in hypospadus. And so I got to see him. He actually started surgery on me and he stopped. He woke me up from anesthesia and said, Jim, do you really want to keep going through this for the rest of your life? And I'm like, I didn't know I had an option. I was never given an option. It was like, no, we have to operate. Well, and then I knew what would happen if they didn't. The UTIs would continue and my, my stream would stop. So it's like, I, I just didn't know. So what he proposed was the perineal urethrostomy. <laughs> Say that a lot. 
basically going through my perineum and just using that for the opening. So nothing goes through the actual penis. Uh, the procedure took, I think it was a simple incision because I got up, got out of anesthesia, almost like, I'm trying to remember what other, something to compare it to, like when you have a colonoscopy, not that everybody has, but I have, but I got out of anesthesia. Uh, I was fine. I could hold my urine. I went to breakfast. I went home. I went to work. Uh, I mean, it was that sudden. I was planning on another month of hell. <laughs> and it was like, I was so happy initially. The problem is, you know, how do you explain it? What do you do with, you know, when somebody asks what's going on down there? You know, when, when I started doing HEA walks and meeting Amanda and doing them with her, it's like, Amanda, we need to find forest preserves with restrooms. She didn't get it. <laughs> but yes, I, I get to pull down my pants. I get to squat. So it was definitely something to get used to. It was definitely something that I now pay attention to women and my surroundings and cleanliness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I used to laugh. And not whatever, I guess it was sort of a joke. It's like going into men's room, but people really do pee all over those toilet seats and they don't clean and whatever. And it's like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So you learn to squat a little bit higher and <laughs> go with it. So, but since that time, I have never had another surgery as far as ejaculates, urine, everything goes through that opening. So it's, it's a little bit different. Everything feels the same, but it just functions differently. So just things that you have to get used to. Do you think that was your original urethra? Yes. Uh, I think that since I didn't have a scrotum when I was born, they just called it pedoscrotal uh, since I had undescended testicles. My first surgeon, uh, after my surgery failed, he said, it's like in business, which I had a business degree. It's like, it's that 80-20 rule. 80% of the people that get this surgery will be fine. I'll have a complication with 20%. Out of that 20%, 80% will do fine on the second one. And then he finally said, you're just that 1% that keeps coming back. My last surgeon who did this other procedure said, that is not true. With every surgery, you're odds go down and down and down and down because, you know, your, your tissues have been damaged, your nerves have been damaged. So, you know, it, it really, finally, this man was honest with me and I appreciated that because, you know, through HEA, I know a lot of wonderful surgeons and I would not badmouth them because I know they're doing their best and they have helped a lot of people. I'm just one of those exceptions. <laughs> that I help people through my story. So we had Alice Drager on uh, in a previous episode. Yes, and I love her. One of the things that she had kind of stressed, you know, normal is a, a setting on a dryer. I remember something my parents said when we finally had my coming out party as far as hypospatus and we hugged and went through all that. And my mom always called me her $6 million man. And it didn't make sense. But every time I got up from surgery, it reminded me of something that Tiger DeVore said, is that I was expecting to see this, this perfect penis. Because 
I had suffered, I had paid a fortune. In all actuality, you know, yes, it's it's been a very expensive life. <laughs> but yeah, you wake up and it's like, oh good, the surgery's done. Let's see what what it is. And instead it's like, oh, there's Frankenstein's monster because you know they cut here, they cut here, they cut here. Uh, they wrap it all up. So there's scars and then the scars have to heal. So I think what would be different is if my parents would have been able to be upfront from the start when I asked those questions uh, is that I would have probably accepted myself. I mean, that that's my excuse now. Now, would I have actually, or would, would the perfectionist part of me want to have that perfect penis? Possibly. But I think that a lot of it was driven by the fact that I wasn't allowed to talk about it. And then I was shocked to learn that I had this thing and, and my parents knew about it and never told me about it. So I don't know which was the most hurtful. On the other side of that, uh, as I was in different hospital settings after that, it was like everybody in my family knew. I was the only one, I mean, aunts, uncles, whatever. It's like they talked about Jimmy. And I, you know, then it made sense why they all treated me nicely, but with kid gloves, uh, like I was going to be broken or something, <laughs> which obviously is not true. I guess if there was parents listening, young men listening, or anyone listening, honestly, what would you like to share with them in terms of um, if they're going through some of these emotions? Again, I love Alice Dreger. What I would say is that she's totally right. There is no, this, this normal is a concept and it's, it's sort of like going back to the thing that we all learn about the bell curve. There's like these, there's like this perfect. And then there's this thing that's out here and out here and out here. My life is as normal as I could. I mean, I have friends that once they hear my story, it's like they, their jaws drop. It's like, Jim, you're so together. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think I'm together at all. But they're like, you know, you're the most normal person. You know, it's like we would have no idea that any of that ever happened to you. And that might be why I do better at what I do. You know, I, I do work hard. I don't know what to tell them about normal. They're, they're all going to have their life. I can't be you, John. I can't be you, Bonnie. I can't be Alice. I can't be Tiger. Uh, I have to be the best me that I can be. Sometimes that difficult. Um, I think it depends on your support system. A lot of my friends that went through my very first surgeries are still my friends today. And a couple of them live within 10 miles of me still. So I've always had my handful of friends who I've always known and loved. I've had friends uh, around the country who are the same. I now have friends around the world who are the same. Uh, a lot of those friends are similar to me. None of them will ever be like me. I think the biggest thing that I learned from being involved with HEA and being in its leadership was that there are men with HEA that have never had one surgery, but yet they feel that connection. They, they don't know why they feel different, but they do. There are men with HEA that have had way more surgeries than I have. So if I say I've had 27 surgery and Tiger says he's had 27 surgeries, there are men that I've known that have had double or triple that amount. 
And, and that's a scary thought that, you know, you would have to live your life. As Barb Nielsen would say, uh, oh, I miss her so much, but she would talk about resiliency. But as you get older, your resiliency sort of isn't as strong as it used to. It's like elasticity, I think. It's there. You have your supports. But things are just more difficult. Like, I know that I could be much more flexible even 20 years ago than I am now. Uh, Can I still walk my 10 miles? You're going to see that. On the 27th, I will be doing my walk for HEA once again. I think I didn't do it two years ago due to COVID, but I have never missed a year doing it. My favorite walks would have been the one I did with you on Fire Island. Uh, The one I did in uh, Fort Lauderdale with a bunch of guys. Uh, The ones that I do by myself or by myself. Another one that was really cool is when around the world, people were walking or riding their bikes for HEA. And, you know, that's, that's really an accomplishment to get that many people involved and to get the word out and the message out. So once again, I sidestepped your question. (laughs) That's all. We also have to get to what would you advise parents if your baby is born and they're urinating, you know, they have hypospadias, they have penoscrotal, they have cording. Parents are still being told, for example, that if you don't fix the cordy when they have an erection, they'll be in pain. If they're urinating fine while waiting for the first surgery, say, say they do the first surgery at age one or age two, if they're urinating well, do they need to do the surgery? Do they need to fix the cordy? I would say that I can't answer that because I'm not that parent and I'm not that child, Uh, especially from what I've been through. I can just imagine the pain my parents were under trying to make that decision and then all those decisions after that. So I'm never going to judge a parent for trying to do the best they can for their child. What I would advise a parent to do is get more than one advisement to go to different centers of excellence. And I would go to a center of excellence and that would be a hospital where urology is a specialty and not just a sideshow. However, I also have to say in my own case, I went to like the best surgeons all over. And I've also, even in my adult life since HEA had some of the most world renowned surgeons following me as I took my journey. But, or, you know, as I'm on my journey, those doctors though, you know, they're human. I can't say that that child with a cordy or whatever is going to have the complications that I had. Uh, It's very possible that that surgeon has a wonderful technique and this child has one surgery. Uh, What the parents don't listen to or what they're not familiar with is uh, something I learned from Tiger DeVore that when you cut something, it still affects the nerve endings. So you want to be very careful about that, that it's whatever they do is as minimally invasive as possible. And a lot of these surgeries just are not. I know that they've progressed a great deal since I started having my, you know, let's face it, my first surgeries were like in 1959. My most recent surgery was in 2016. So the 
just everything has changed night and day, especially when you have a major surgery and they let you out of the hospital that day or the next day. They keep you long enough to check for pain uh, and then send you home. Uh, make sure you can walk and make sure you can eat. For those parents, I my heart's just with them because it's such, you know, what they want is what the rest of us wanted. We want to wake up with that perfect penis and to know that we're going to have a good life and we're going to have a spouse and we're going to have children and we're going to have just what everybody else has, that normal that Alice uh, was alluding to that doesn't really exist. So that's my best way to describe it as it, they're wanting what we want, but it might not exist for that child, period. But what they can give that child is everything else that that child can do. They're still going to have relationships. They're still going to have, you know, all those things, fall in love, blah, blah, blah. I will be honest and say the main reason that I pursued it as an adult is because I was gay and I was very closeted. And I thought if I had a perfect penis that it would make me straight. And it did not. That's a really interesting point, actually, because two things, actually, that you just mentioned. I, I, I won't ask double barreled questions. as much That's okay. Fire away. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I think you make an excellent point about parental guilt. It took me a very long time to really contemplate the position my parents were in, you know, about decisions that they had to make. And from uh, doctors and such that I've talked to, that there's a lot of parental guilt because of they, they want their child to have a perfect penis. You know, I like to think of it where, you know, when it, when a child's born, everybody wants to count their fingers and toes, but they don't check the penis necessarily. That's not part of the, the anecdote when people say that, you know, but what I found in my travels from talking to different people is that, yeah, parents somehow feel a sadness, a guilt, a, what did I do wrong that caused this type of thing? So I think it's a really interesting point that you make about that um, for your parents' situation. Um, and I think there's a lot of parents out there that just want to make their child better somehow. And I'm not a parent myself, and I'm not sure what I would do if I was in those shoes. I'm curious, I guess, my, my question as far as that goes is, did you ever have an opportunity before they passed to hear from them about that? After they sent the letter back to me and my medical records, then I went home and we talked thoroughly all about it. I actually had to move home because that's when I decided to do that surgery in Norfolk. And it was, you know, easier to get there from South Carolina than Chicago. So I had to transfer jobs and do all that stuff. So that's how that happened. We had lots of heart to heart talks and, you know, things that happened and the way that they felt about things. And they they accepted me for who I was. That was my biggest fear. They knew me, they loved me, and they made that very clear. They didn't talk about it because of the guilt. They just didn't know how to approach it. And then since the doctors had told them never to discuss it, that was the easy way to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, <laughs> I was joking about the double barrel question, but I do have another one. Yes. Uh, you know, since, since you mentioned, um, you know, you are a gay man and other people that I've talked to also talked about that there's a lot of fear by parents of that if their child has hypospadias, that they're automatically going to become gay. Can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of your, I don't want to say that's, philosophy. No, but, you're right. And that's 
actually, I, I think the doctors were very open with my parents as far as sexuality went. They said, because of the severity of your son's hypospadus, there's a good chance that he will be gay. Because, um, you know, basically, by all appearances, I was born intersex because I, I looked like I had a woman's parts and a man's parts. And then they had to reconstruct all that just to be men's parts. But because I've been with HEA, again, I've met men with no surgeries who are gay, and I've met men with several surgeries who are gay, but I've also met more men who are straight with no surgeries. And so Barbara, I had this talk with her years ago, um, and she said, Jim, it's the same. It's that uh, you can call it uh, that 10% rule that's always, you know, 90% of men are straight. Uh, she said, I think it's more like 80. <laughs> and then she said, you know, but she said in her practice that she has seen that it's pretty much a normal line, that it's the same as if you don't have hypospadus, if you don't have, you know, if you have any condition, that it's still the number that's normal. <laughs> It's not, you know, so, yeah. I do want to give you a chance to plug the walk a little bit more. And uh, the HEA conference is upcoming uh, in Orlando, uh, September 29th through the 3rd, for anyone listening that's interested. And your walk, Jim, is going to be the 27th of August? It's going to be the 27th. If it's rainy or whatever, then it'll be the 28th or the 26th. I'll sort of watch the weather. But usually it's Usually, whenever I do my walk, it's absolutely beautiful weather, so I'm looking forward to it. How, how can anyone um, donate for your walk? To the walk, they can go on Facebook, uh, on my page. They can go on the Hypospatus, Epispatus page. I put a, uh, I'm going to put a link. They can go to heainfo.org. And there should be a link to donate for the walk. You can also, if you go onto my Facebook, there are addresses. There's a Kyle Texas PO box. Uh, and my address is also listed in Wakanda, Illinois, that you can uh, send a check. Excellent. Excellent. And I will make sure that all those funds go to scholarships uh, or whatever else is needed to support their conference. I think my main message is for parents and us with it, women with hypospadias, which I've met a couple. I've been able to pretty much travel all over the country every year, meet very cool people. Uh, share stories, get insights, and celebrate life with people uh, very similar to me and very different, uh, just being open. I'm just saying also be, just make sure to get good medical advice and a lot of it. Don't get one opinion and settle for it. And also don't keep looking until you hear the answer you want to hear. That might not exist. Perfect doesn't exist. And your son or daughter is going to grow up to be a wonderful human being. Just let them. Thank you so much, Jim, for doing this. And uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time on Hypospadius Conversations. The hosts of this podcast are not medical professionals. And the information presented during the podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice. If you or someone you love has a medical question concerning hypospadias, please consult your physician.